Acts chapter 26, we're going to begin reading at verse 22. So let's read the word of the Lord together. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. And thank you for your love. Now open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit of the Lord will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. Prosper them, O Lord. Extend their influence for the kingdom. I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. Draw them back to you. Don't let one of them be lost, I ask. In the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever dealt with someone for whom it seemed like an act of Congress to get them to make a decision about anything? It's like pulling hen's teeth to get them to decide on which restaurant to go to for lunch. Once you get there, you sit for what seems like hours waiting on them to decide what to order, and that's just what they're having to drink. You could order, eat, and pay the check three times by the time they get around to deciding on their entree. Does that frustrate anybody besides me? Just make up your mind. Point. Have you ever been around somebody who will spend a great deal of time accumulating the facts of a matter, but then never do anything with those facts? Nothing is ever accomplished by someone like that. There's a lot of activity. You spin your wheels and race the engine, but you never get anywhere. When you think about it, we are called upon to make dozens, maybe even hundreds of choices every single day. What time to get up? Breakfast first or shower first? What do I have for breakfast or do I eat breakfast? What to wear? 
You've made dozens of choices and you haven't even left the house. And you still have to decide if you're even going to leave the house and which route you will take when you go. Now, most of the choices we make are nothing more than personal preference choices. Nothing of any great consequence is riding on the choice. But there is one choice you are called to make that has consequences not only for time, but for all eternity as well. It's a choice with which the church must always challenge the culture. And before we get out of here today, I'm going to call upon you to make a choice in this most important area. Before you check out on this message because you think you've already decided, I'm going to ask you to hear me out because it just might not be exactly what you think it's going to be. In the story that forms our text for today, we find a man who is faced with a choice. His name is King Agrippa, and the choice is presented to him by a man we've been looking at for some time in our journey through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul. By the time we get to this story, Paul has been an inmate for two years, incarcerated on false charges, and kept in prison by corrupt politicians who are more interested in a bribe than they are in justice. Over the course of these two years, Paul has stood before the mob on the steps of the fortress in Jerusalem. He has stood before the Sanhedrin. He has stood in open court before Governor Felix and also in private interviews with him and his wife, Drusilla. When Felix was recalled to Rome, Paul stood before his replacement, Governor Festus. Now he stands before King Agrippa. No matter where Paul stands, his message is the same. He isn't defending himself nearly as much as he is testifying. And the theme of his testimony is the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. I wish I had the ability to adequately paint this picture to show you the contrast between these two men. The hall is filled with high and mighty in the kingdom. They have entered with great pomp and pageantry. When everyone is in place, the door swings open, and in comes Paul, chained between two soldiers. Here on one side, you have Agrippa, clothed in purple. On the other, you have Paul standing before him in prison garb. Agrippa is seated on a gilded throne. Paul is standing in shackles. Agrippa wears a crown of gold. Paul wears chains. Agrippa is a king bound in the slavery of sin. Paul is a prisoner rejoicing in the freedom of sins forgiven. Agrippa is an earthly king who could not free Paul nor himself. Paul is an ambassador of the heavenly king who had freed him and who could free Agrippa from the effects of sin. When Paul is given permission to speak, he tells the story of his life before Christ. You can read about that in, in the preceding verses of this chapter. He talks about his conversion and the commission he has been given by Jesus. Then he narrows the focus to the one most important thing he has to talk about, the resurrection of Jesus. No other subject, no other theme is as important as the resurrection. 
When Paul would write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he would say, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection truly is the most important thing for us to know and understand and embrace. It has meaning and significance to us both for time and for eternity. The truth of the resurrection is a message desperately needed in this modern world. The proclamation of that message is what will keep us relevant in a world in desperate need. The reason the Apostle Paul kept coming back to the theme of the resurrection as the most important thing is because the resurrection means your past can be forgiven. Now that's good news today. If you were looking for some, there it is. Your past can be forgiven. Have you ever been halfway through a project and wish you could could start over? I've done that with some things on the computer. You know, I've gotten started on a project, and I'm, I'm not computer illiterate. I'm kind of computer kindergarten. <laughs> a few days ago, I was trying to format a document for a presentation, and it was rather involved, had a lot of steps, multiple moving parts to it. I had to go back and forth on the screens from, from the document to another screen that was giving me instructions of how to proceed, and I was working on and the more I worked on it, the worse it got. Finally, I got so frustrated, the only way to fix it was to just hit the delete button, take a deep breath, and start over. I've discovered a lot of people feel that way about life. They get halfway through life and wish they could go back and start over. All of us have done things we wish we hadn't done, said things we wish we hadn't said, thought things we wish we hadn't thought. We all have regrets. We all feel bad about some things. All of us have areas where we feel guilty. I come in contact with a lot of people who can't get on with the present and move into the future because they're stuck in the past. Some guilt or some regret has them tied down. Sometimes they're letting a former relationship mess up their current relationship. And they say things like, I guess I'll just have to live with this the rest of my life. But I have some good news for you today. Colossians 2.14 says, he has forgiven all our sins and canceled every debt we owe. Christ has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. I'm telling you, this is God's pardon program. Jesus nailed it all to the cross. He paid for your guilt, and that means you don't have to pay for it. He was hung up for your hang-ups. Jesus was nailed to the cross so you can quit nailing yourself to the cross. When you come to him, he will forgive your past. He will cancel every debt you owe, emotional debt, relational debts, sins, all canceled. I, I don't know how you do it, but once I pay a bill, I don't remember it anymore. Once the check is in the mail, I forget about it. I move on to the next thing. And here's the point. Once the Lord has forgiven it, I can forget it. Amen. 
I just want that to sink in. Jesus has proven his deity in the resurrection. He is who he said he was. And because of this, my past and your past can be forgiven. You do not have to carry around a load of guilt. You do not have to worry about all that stuff jumping up and dragging you down at the last minute just before you stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. That's why Romans 8 and 1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, you can walk out of here at the end of this service knowing that every single thing you've ever done wrong is completely forgiven. That's good news today. No condemnation. Jesus did not come to rub it in. He came to rub it out. He said in John 3 and 17, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. I want to change you. I want to help you. I want to give you a new beginning. I want to give you a clear conscience. And that's why the resurrection is of first importance because it means your past can be forgiven. He is the son of God. He proves it by the resurrection. And that means he can take away all of your sin. Your past can be forgiven. Not only that, but it means your present can be managed. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but I've discovered that much of life is unmanageable. I meet up with a lot of people whose number one complaint is, my life is out of control. I feel powerless to change the situation. I feel powerless to break a bad habit. I feel powerless to save a relationship. I I feel powerless to get out of the mountain of debt. I feel powerless to manage my schedule. Well, listen, what you need is a power greater than yourself. You were never meant to live this life on your own power. God wants to have a relationship with you. And here's the good news. Ephesians 1, 18 and, or 19 and 20 says, how incredibly great is his power to help those who believe him. The same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. I'm telling you the same power that enabled Jesus to rise from death is the same power that will help you rise above your problems. The same power God used at the resurrection 2,000 years ago can be active in your life right now. You don't know what your future holds, and neither do I. I don't know what's going to happen next year, next month, next week. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon. And neither do you. The truth is, it doesn't matter. Because even though it's out of my control, it's not out of God's. He will give me the power to face it. (laughs) Some of you came basically crawling in here today. You've had a tough week. God wants to say to you, don't give up. No problem is too big for God. No situation is hopeless if you'll turn it over to him. Even death itself is not a problem when you trust the resurrected Lord. You see, the thing we need in this day and age to keep going in the face of obstacles, the thing we need to be able to cope with life and all its changes, the thing we need in order to hang on when everything around is rocking and shaking is the resurrection power of Jesus. All the sermons in the world will not reconcile families. All the good teaching will not stabilize finances during times of economic crunch. 
all the creeds of all the churches combined will not heal the ulcers of the man or woman who has been stretched to the limit of endurance. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. And that's why Philippians 4 and 13 says, I'm ready for anything through the strength of Christ who lives in me. See, I'm not ready for anything through the power of positive thinking. I'm not ready for anything because I psyched myself up with some good vibes. I'm not ready for anything because of some happy talk that gave me an emotional boost. But I am ready for anything through the strength of Christ who lives in me. The resurrection is of first importance because it means your past can be forgiven. It means your present can be managed. And then finally, we need to understand the resurrection is of first importance because it means your future can be secure. One of the universal problems we all have is death. Nobody gets out of here alive. Only a fool would go through life Listen, only a fool would go through life unprepared for something he knows is inevitable. It just doesn't make any sense. But sometimes we get so busy in the here and now, we don't stop to think about the hereafter. In my almost 40 years of being a lead pastor, I've lost count of the number of funerals I've preached. In that time, I've preached funeral services for everyone from an infant only a few days old to senior adults who live to be almost 100. And the point of telling you that is simply to remind you there are no guarantees. We all die. We just don't know when we're going to die. I I stumbled across something the other day. Uh, It was a, a, what what, what was it called? It was some kind of calculator Calculate the day of your death. Anybody ever seen those things? It's hilarious. I just want you to know y'all are stuck with me for a little while longer. And I'm... You know, they take take your, your height, your weight, your current age, whether you smoke or don't smoke, and you know, all kinds of data, and they input it, and they, from some kind of formula that they've devised, they come up and, you know, tell me exactly how long I'm supposed to live. Uh, So I have a new goal to prove him wrong. I'm just going to live at least two days beyond that, just, just because, you know. But we don't know when we're going to die. Everybody has a deep longing to know what's going to happen after I die. I mean, it's obvious we're going to spend more time on that side of eternity than on this side. So what's going to happen? I found there are a lot of misconceptions of what heaven is like. But when you go to the Bible, which is our source book, you discover that heaven is a perfect place. Total love, total peace, total joy, total perfection. 
No sin, no mistakes, no evil, no bad, no errors. It's perfect in every area. The second thing the Bible says is in order for you to go there, you have to be perfect because only perfection can exist in heaven. Now, that's too bad because that leaves us all out. <laughs> we'll never make it if we have to be perfect. And that's the point. There are two ways the Bible says you can get to heaven. Okay? Plan A is the performance plan. In this plan, you work hard and you earn your way to heaven. And to earn it, this is what you have to do. Never sin and always do what's right for the entire time you live. Always make the right decisions. Always say the right thing. Never say the wrong thing. Just be perfect. Since we've already blown plan A... God gives another plan, plan B. This plan says, trust Jesus when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was the only perfect person who has ever lived because he was God. He came so we could know what God is like. And by trusting and establishing a relationship with him, you get in on his goodness instead of your own. When you get to heaven, you'll say, God, I can't get in on my own effort. The only way I qualify is because I'm a friend of Jesus. John 17, 3 says, this is the way to have eternal life, by knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one he sent to earth. I'm, I'm trying to give you some good news today. Jesus has already paid for your way to heaven. And a Christian is not somebody who accepts a religion. A Christian is somebody who has a relationship with God. Yeah, I've discovered a lot of people try different ways to get to heaven. Some people try what I call salvation by sincerity. You know, it goes like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, now just think about that for a minute. I heard some time ago about a pilot who flew into a mountain. He thought the mountain was lower and the plane was higher. He killed himself in that crash. He was sincerely wrong. I could pick up this glass and take a drink, thinking it's water. But if somebody had sneaked up here before service and laced it with arsenic... I could drink it thinking it's water, and I'd be sincerely dead. Some people think you get to heaven by service. I can do all these good things and work my way there. That doesn't work. You, you can't do enough good to outweigh the bad. Some people try salvation by subtraction. You know, you give up a bunch of things, and then you get to heaven. You know, I don't... Drink, smoke, smoke, cuss, chew, run around with girls that do. I don't do nothing. Listen, if being a Christian is just a matter of not doing things, then anybody who's dead qualifies as a Christian. 
Then there are people who think they'll get to heaven by ritual. I'll get baptized. Listen, you can get baptized in the ocean until every fish knows you by your first name and it won't get you there. Maybe you'll attend church and think that'll make you a Christian. Listen, sitting in a church will make you a Christian as much as sitting in a chicken house will make you a chicken. You say you joined the church? Well, if you joined the Lions Club, does that make you a lion? You say you were born in church. If you're born in a car, does that make you a spare tire? How about salvation by heritage? Your mother was a Christian. Your grandmother was a Christian. So what? That's like saying you're married because your mother, your grandmother, and your great-grandmother were married. It doesn't work like that. You have to make a personal decision. One of my favorites is salvation by comparison. Well, at least I'm better than Pastor Larry. He keeps telling me that he's got a a special sermon on sin, and I tell him I do not need sermon illustrations. Well, you're probably better than me, but God isn't judging you according to me or anybody else. And God doesn't grade on the curve. It's either perfection or zip. It's either 100% or plan B, trust Christ. I told you on the front end of this message, I was going to ask you to make a choice today. And it's the most important choice you'll ever make. It's the same choice faced by King Agrippa in our text. See, it isn't enough to have the information. It isn't even enough to believe the information. Understanding that Jesus rose from the dead is not enough. Understanding why Jesus rose from the dead isn't enough. You have to take some action steps. Understanding what I've just talked about is not enough to get you into heaven. You have to accept it and act on it. I'm talking to some people who need to make a decision to turn to Jesus as your only hope of salvation. You've never done that. And you're at a point of decision today. And I urge you with all that is within me, don't be like Agrippa. Almost you persuade me. See, he had the information. He understood it. But he couldn't bring himself to make the decision. And as a result, was forever lost. I'm talking to somebody today who would like to have everything you've ever done wrong completely forgiven. I'm talking to somebody who would like to leave this place with a clear conscience. You can have it when you make the decision to come to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. Repent of your sin. Ask God for Jesus' sake to forgive you and receive his free gift of salvation. In 1 Peter 1, 3, we're told, we have been born again into a life full of hope through Christ rising from the dead. Hope means you don't fear death anymore. (laughs) You're not ready to live until you're ready to die. And you can't really live unless you're not afraid to die. 
And the only way I know to get to the place where you're not afraid to die is by making peace with God now. Almost persuaded is completely lost. But you aren't the only ones who need to make a decision. I'm also talking to some people, you've been born again, but you're not appropriating the power of the resurrection for your daily life struggles. Some of you, you've come to Jesus and gotten forgiveness for your sin, but you're trying to live the rest of your life on your own steam. Some of you have drifted away. You were close to God in the past, but... But you drifted. You didn't, you didn't turn your back on it. You just, you've just gotten complacent, careless. You've drifted. Listen to what God has to say to somebody who has drifted away. It's in Isaiah 54, verse 7. He says, with deep love, I will welcome you back. Amen. Remember that love I was talking about before the sermon? Yeah. That's it. With deep love, God says, I will welcome you back. So I'm not only calling people to make a decision to trust Jesus with salvation, I'm also calling people to make a decision to trust Jesus with your present problem. Almost persuaded means nothing changes. And you're still anxious and fearful and broken. So let me ask you, would you like to acquire a new power that will help you manage the problems in your present? Would you like to have your future secured? That happens when you take the action step and you surrender your life to Jesus. It doesn't really matter what your background is. Your background may be Catholic or Jewish or Protestant or Mormon or Buddhist or Baptist or nothing. It really doesn't matter. See, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus. I'm talking about a life fully surrendered to his will and his way. That's what this day is all about. See, God knows you. He wants you to know him. So you just come with an open heart and say, God, here I am. Nobody will ever love you as much as Jesus does. Nobody. You matter to God. And he brought you to this service here today to tell you that. Jesus died for you to prove how much he loves you. And then he rose from the dead to demonstrate his power to take care of the deepest, darkest problem in your life. Because he is risen, your past can be forgiven. Because he is risen, your present can be managed. Because he is risen, your future can be secure. You believe it, and what are you going to do about it? I invite you to bring all your problems to Jesus. Don't put it off. Make the decision. And come to Jesus today.